You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's program, there is much to be concerned about between now and the critical November 8 midterm elections, the first nationwide elections since Donald Trump tried to steal the 2020 presidential election. New voter suppression laws in Republican-controlled states and disturbing threats and rising incidents of intimidation are increasing concerns about the potential for disruption at polling places. Angela Peoples of Election Defenders explains how the National Grassroots Organization is mobilizing across the country to recruit and train volunteers in concrete ways to support voters at polling sites and ensure everyone can vote freely and fairly. But first, Brad's talk with congressional historian Norm Ornstein about Republicans' very public threat that if they win majorities in either the House or the Senate in November, they plan to hold the nation and the economy hostage by refusing to raise the debt ceiling in order to force severe cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and more, in turn wreaking economic havoc. The Republicans are loud and clear about this. They've already said, for example, that they will use the debt ceiling negotiations. You know, we've got to raise the debt ceiling so that we can meet the obligations of the United States of America. And there are already Republicans saying, hey, if they can get control of the House or the Senate, then they're going to hold hostage things like Social Security and Medicare. Remember, uh, Ron Johnson, for example, who's running in Wisconsin, said we ought to vote every year on whether to keep Social Security and Medicare. So they want to be able to use these kind of levers to blow up our economy. exactly what they want to do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was Senator Elizabeth Warren recently on MSNBC. But in 2011, as noted recently by the in the Atlantic by congressional historian Norm Ornstein, the then new House Republican majority, egged on by Eric Cantor and some guy named Kevin McCarthy and led by radical Tea Party rightists, such as Jason Chaffetz, brought the U.S. to the brink of financial default. The disaster in 2011 was headed off by a last-minute compromise between Speaker John Boehner, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and President Barack Obama. A breach of the debt ceiling, meaning the loss of the full faith and credit of the United States, would have been catastrophic, Norm writes. But Chaffetz and many of his colleagues were more than willing to make that happen. 
In the aftermath, Chaffetz said, quote, we weren't kidding around. We would have taken it down. Well, they didn't, but even as it was, their brinksmanship and delays had severe effects. The Dow fell 2,000 points in the months that followed their hostage-taking threat, and borrowing costs for the federal government increased by billions of dollars in the bargain, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. Chaffetz is now long gone from the House, but the Tea Party radicals, who a few years later became the so-called Freedom Caucus, have moved from the fringe to the center among House Republicans. And if Republicans capture a majority in next month's midterm election, they will make the Tea Party group look like milk toast moderates, Ornstein argues. The prospect of default, yes, default of the U.S. government for the first time in history to be able to pay its bills because Republicans disallow the federal government from lifting the limit on how much it may borrow to pay for stuff that it has already bought, stuff that was already approved by both Congress and the president, along with extended government shutdowns and disruptions and hamstrung and a hamstrung administration that, notes Ornstein, will loom very large if Republicans take back the House. And while I have mentioned it previously, I think it's worth repeating. Despite increasing the federal deficit, by trillions of dollars during the Trump administration, Congress approved raising the debt limit, the debt ceiling, three different times during those four years without a peep, without a complaint or any hostages taken, much less shot. But of course, now that a Democrat occupies the Oval Office again, Republicans appear to be set to pretend that they're concerned about deficits and to at least threaten to bring down not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy along with it. Joining us now, once again, is longtime congressional historian and political scientist Norm Ornstein, a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also author of many books, including most recently, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, with Thomas Mann and One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported. Norm is also a contributing editor and columnist for The Atlantic, where he wrote last week asking how far would a Republican majority go as it is not only democracy itself at stake this fall. Dr. Ornstein, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Great. It's great to be with you, Brad. Norm, you uh, wrote uh, at the, in that article at The Atlantic, uh, quote, if Republicans win control of the House of Representatives, the country will face a series of fundamental challenges much greater than we have had in any modern period of divided government, including a direct and palpable threat of default and government shutdown. What are your fears? And as an historian, why do you think they will be, quote, much greater than what we have seen in the past? So, Brad, what we've seen in the past, to take the last part first, mm -hmm. is that even where we had reckless behavior, reckless in some cases leadership, including from the likes of uh, Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. back in 2011, uh, there were grown-ups in the room who kept it from getting out of control. Mm. And the atmosphere was at least a little bit different, where they could command at least some followers. 
we're in a different world now. Uh, we're in a world that has been influenced on the Republican side significantly by Donald Trump. Trump didn't create this mess and this dysfunction. He's an accelerant, but he's an important one. In the past, we still had what we could think of as a political party, even as it began to go downhill. But now it's a full-blown cult. And the willingness of new members coming in, joining with a lot of radical members who will be returning, to blow the whole thing up, the lack of interest in fundamental institutions or in the need to be responsible at governance, it's astonishing. Mm. And what we see now is a Republican Party in the House to start with, mm-hmm. where any of those figures who try to stay within the bounds, the norms of common behavior, including the fraction, the dozen or so, who voted, for example, to impeach Donald Trump in the aftermath of a violent insurrection where their own lives were threatened, mm-hmm. they're all going to be gone. Mm. They've either been defeated in primaries or redistricted out of office or basically uh, decided that enough was enough. And the new ones coming in, in contest after contest, where Republican voters had a choice between somebody who was at least somewhere near the bounds of normality Mm -hmm. and somebody far outside it, they've gone for the latter. Now put that together with another reality, which is if the Republicans capture a majority in the House, Uh it is very, very likely that Kevin McCarthy would be the Speaker. I have never in 50-plus years of being immersed in the institution seen a weaker or more pathetic leader Mm -hmm. than Kevin McCarthy, and the idea that he would stop them from mayhem is at this point uh, not believable. Well, let me ask you, yeah, you cite in your piece the uh, the GOP primary elections to sort of buttress your case that Republicans had the choice, and this is who they chose, these more you know radical right-wingers. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you about a couple of different scenarios there. If many of those candidates that those uh, Republican voters chose, if many of them lose for in their uh, races for the Senate, as had looked likely several weeks ago, uh, it's more of a jump ball now, but if Republicans take back a House majority but fail to win back the Senate, which should have been easy in a year like this, um, w- will that help in any way to put the brakes on these House Republicans that you're so worried about? Look, let's face it, if the Republicans captured both Houses, Mm-hmm. It is an even bigger nightmare for Joe Biden and for the country. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the biggest reason there is that if Republicans have the Senate, they not only have control of the committees and the agenda, uh, but they control the nomination confirmation process. Right. So we've already seen uh, Mitch McConnell basically say that if a Supreme Court vacancy occurred uh, and the Republicans had the Senate, Joe Biden as president, they would not allow him to fill that seat. We know that there are going to be lots of vacancies in lower federal courts, courts of appeals, district mm-hmm. courts, and we've already seen those uh, courts stacked with Trumpists. None of those would happen. And then there's another big problem that emerges, which is, In a presidential term of four years, 
after two years, a lot of the people you have put into positions of policy influence, mm-hmm. cabinet and sub-cabinet offices, heads of agencies and the like, leave. These are demanding jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've done things well, you've got others waiting in the wings who have been nominated and confirmed for you know positions below them. Mm-hmm. If you have an undersecretary who leaves, you've got an assistant secretary who can move up, and so on. And it's not that the uh, Biden administration, in part because of Republican obstruction, uh, has managed to fill all of those positions. But even if you do, when these vacancies occur, a Republican Senate is going to either slow walk or kill the nominations you want to make and get confirmed. Mm -hmm. And that means you're going to have a huge problem carrying out your own policies. You may have agencies where none of the people chosen by the president are there in the office to help you carry out your policies. But so the headaches become that much greater. Mm-hmm. But if Democrats hold the Senate, even if they can add a couple of seats mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. and the Republicans win the House, the main point that I made in my piece, other than the fact that these are uh, uh, radicals mm-hmm. uh, dominating the party, is that they can't pass legislation on their own. Right. They can't uh, impeach and convict and remove from office the officials they would want to, including the president and uh, the uh, attorney general and the uh, secretary of Homeland Security, among many others. Mm -hmm. But they have two powers here. One is they can drive you absolutely crazy (laughs) with investigations, subpoenas, and other things that just give you headaches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can go back at the hearing after hearing after hearing on Benghazi yeah. uh, during uh, the uh, previous administration, Obama administration, that um, took up enormous time and effort uh, from uh, the Secretary of State and others. Uh, but at the same time, you can use the power of the purse. You can block funding. Mm-hmm. And they've already indicated, among other things, that they're likely to block additional funding for aid to Ukraine. We have a Republican Party that sides more with Vladimir Putin than it does with Forces for Freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, another of the big changes that we've seen. And that could be catastrophic. And at the same time, we've already had large numbers of their members uh, looking eagerly forward to a government shutdown if they don't get their way. And, of course, along with that function and the power of the purse, the ability to basically refuse to provide the funding necessary to keep government running is the debt ceiling and And that's catastrophic in and of itself and that's really where it seems to me i mean this is different from a a government shutdown for example where you know the parties can't agree on on an annual budget and you know before the deadline for the government running out of funds to pay for social security checks or executive uh, branch agencies and so forth but the debt ceiling it seems to me is different for people that may not understand, uh, because in truth, it's it's sort of arcane. And in fact, it actually doesn't make any sense. Norm, uh, can you explain what the debt ceiling actually is and why we even have such a thing? Most most nations do not have such a thing, correct? Uh, uh, nearly every other significant nation has no comparable mechanism. Uh-huh. Now, the idea that you have a debt ceiling was put in place to try and bring about fiscal discipline, that you only add to your debt 
by explicitly agreeing to do so. When you have spending, you have to raise the debt ceiling. Now, if you look back over history, in our lifetimes especially, the parties play games with this because it's an easy target. If the other party holds the presidency, you can say, we're not going to vote for increasing the debt ceiling because we believe in fiscal discipline. Uh, But the reality is that the leaders of both parties understood that, yeah, you could play some political games, but in the end you're going to find a way to make sure that you don't default. Mm -hmm. Um, As I mentioned in the piece and as you mentioned in your opening, we came close to having that breached in 2011, and the consequences of even coming close were pretty severe. Mm -hmm. But now... Um, it's a different matter. Now, you know, you do this to bring about discipline. It doesn't work in any event. Um, <laughs> what ends up happening is you pass the budget that you're going to pass. Uh, if it adds to the debt, um, uh, that's just the reality of where it is. And periodically, um, you're going to end up in the world in which we live, where you're not going to be completely debt-free um, with the ceiling being reached. And you have to find mechanisms to be able to get around that. And, and the this, best thing to do is to uh, is to do as every other country does and eliminate this ridiculous device. Because we're not really talking about it doesn't actually lower the deficit if you refuse to raise the ceiling. This is stuff we have already paid for. This is just uh, g- getting the approval essentially to borrow the money to pay for the stuff that we already bought. It does. It seems like it wasn't until that moment in history that that you cite uh, Norm Ornstein in in 2011, where it really became a matter of brinkmanship. That uh, am I right? Is is that the first time that yes. they had driven it that far? It's it is the first time that they've driven it that far. I should note that yeah. there was a very brief period done not through malevolence or even because somebody uh, triggered it, mm-hmm. but just through um, a, a sort of small comedy of errors, mm-hmm. that for a very brief period, less than a day during the Carter administration, we breached the debt ceiling. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking <laughs> minutes, right. uh, hours, nothing. Right. And it was not done deliberately. Uh-huh. But when people look back at that, it turned out it was quite costly. Just even that alone raised hmm. interest rates enough that The borrowing costs of the federal government went up. It's a huge government, and there was a big cost. This time in 2011, even though we didn't breach the debt ceiling, Mm -hmm. we came close enough and people realized the danger enough that it also triggered uh, an increase in interest rates. And, uh, you know, experts calculated over the next several years that just getting close cost about $19 billion dollars. So imagine if we actually move into default, and the consequences, by the way, are not just for the United States. Right. They're for every country that holds dollars, yep. uh, and they're for the global uh, economy as well. And and yet you said, uh, when I asked you about it, you said, well, the difference was in, in 2011, there were adults in the room uh, to keep the worst-case scenario from happening. One of those adults was then Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. But in to, uh, 2011, you, you quote him as saying, uh, quote, I think some of our members may have thought the default issue was a hostage you might take a chance at shooting. Most of us didn't think that. What we did learn is this, however, it's a hostage worth ransoming. In other words, 
Uh, well, they're not actually going to do it, but hey, they don't mind running it up to the line if necessary, I guess, to win concessions somehow. That was one of the adults. Uh, I mean, if if he if he's willing to at least, uh, you know, threaten to shoot the hostages and he was the adult. This is very uh, alarming, Norm. Yeah, very, <laughs> very alarming. Uh, and, you know, Brad, I'm not a big fan of Mitch McConnell, as you probably know. Uh-huh. I'm high up on his enemies list, right? Um, of which I'm actually quite proud. <laughs> McConnell basically pulled back because he knew that it would hurt Republicans. Mm-hmm. And I think at least a part of him knew that it would be extremely damaging to the country as a whole. I'm not sure that under every circumstance he would feel the same way. Uh, I refer to him often as uh, a ruthless pragmatist. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was able to control his own Senate Republicans on this front as well. And now it's a question of whether Kevin McCarthy would be able to pull back from the brink. Both of them were very happy to use to play games with the debt ceiling to try and accomplish some of their goals. This time around, the goals that House Republicans want to accomplish uh, are all demands that could simply not be met. You know, it's likely to include dramatic cuts in spending, including a commitment uh, to uh, move to private accounts or to at least slash uh, the spending for Medicare, uh, Social Security, and Medicaid. Um, It's likely to include demands that uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, and possibly the President himself resign. It's likely to include cutting off that aid to Ukraine, and uh, probably a wish list of other things, none of which could be acceptable. And you just have a lot larger number of uh, Jason Chaffetz's mm-hmm. uh, or Jason Chaffetz types that will be in this next house. You know, just to put it into perspective, Brad, uh, we, we know that uh, 538.com, the statistical site, mm-hmm. um, pointed out a few weeks ago that uh, a uh, 128 house Republican candidates who have a 95% plus chance of winning election. Mm-hmm. In other words, we're going to get them in the House, mm-hmm. are election deniers. Yeah. And the fact that they're election deniers, we can take to another level. If you're an election denier, you're a radical person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't believe in institutions or due process uh, or the regular order. Uh And that's going to mean a significant majority of the Republicans in the House, even if they win quite narrowly. 218 makes a majority. 126 is, you know, a lot more than a simple majority. Mm -hmm. And the idea, if anybody's watched Kevin McCarthy, that he would be able, even if he tried, to rein them in when they decide that they have something they really, really, really want to accomplish, and that would include blowing up the government, or rein them in in terms of uh, rescinding their demands. That's not Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, He will preside over chaos. Yeah, And that's why uh, it's imperative that Congress, if 
Republicans do win a majority on November 8th. Um, during the period from then till the new Congress convenes on January 3rd, have to get together and take this issue of the debt ceiling off the table permanently. And I want to ask you about that in our uh, last few minutes here. But before I do, Norm, uh, was would you say that uh, then-President Obama made a mistake by essentially negotiating with, with those terrorists back in 2011? Uh, because it was after that... Uh, you noted the Dow plummeted, the credit rating was lowered, U.S. credit rating was lowered for the first time. Uh, the Obama administration said that they would simply refuse any negotiations on the debt ceiling. They weren't even going to talk about it. Surely Joe Biden learned from that as well. He was vice president at the time. Uh, I mean, will these threats by Republicans actually have any effect this time around with Joe Biden? Or will he just say, no, this is not negotiable. We're not going to talk about it, period. I'm sure that Biden will say it's not negotiable. But if you're the president, you also have the responsibility to try and keep the country from uh, falling into economic turmoil and chaos. Mm. So to some degree, you're going to have to talk to the leaders, at least, and try and find an acceptable way out of this. But the best way to handle it is to make sure you deal with it before it blows up in your face again. Right. And... As I mentioned, to me, by far the best way to deal with it is, uh, it's an irony, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the ironically named McConnell rule. Mm -hmm. Back what McConnell did pragmatically to get out of this in a one-time way was to change the way that this is dealt with. The debt ceiling requires now a separate action by Congress. They could incorporate it into a reconciliation package. They could incorporate it into the appropriations bills. Both houses have to pass it. The president signed it to increase the debt ceiling. What McConnell did was to say, here's how we're going to work this. The president will unilaterally raise the debt ceiling by whatever amount uh, the president choo chooses. Mm -hmm. And then Congress can pass a joint resolution. Both houses would have to act with majorities. Mm -hmm to block that action, mm -hmm. but a joint resolution can be vetoed, uh -huh. and that means all the president would need is one-third plus one of the <laughs> members of one of the two houses. Right. So effectively, the blame goes to the president, not to the president's party overall, uh -huh. but uh, the president, every president would be perfectly happy to take that one on. Right. Uh, but you would have pretty much a guarantee that you could do this without any hostage-taking, without any direct threat of going into default. At now, I believe that they can do that through reconciliation, a new reconciliation bill that they could do in the lame duck. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason they haven't done it up to now is the fear that the parliamentarian would turn it down. My guess is that if we are in a position where it's pretty clear that if you don't act we will end up in default. The parliamentarian would work to find ways to make uh, instituting the McConnell rule and making it permanent uh, easier to do, uh, possible to do. And then we wash our hands of it. Now, there's another way of doing this. Yeah. Paul Krugman of <coughs> the New York Times pointed this out the other day, and that is basically to uh, say, okay, we're just going to raise the debt ceiling by so many trillions that yes. it will take us at least all the way through 
uh, the uh, Biden administration. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm much more uneasy about that because you're then requiring your own members of Congress to uh, greenlight trillions of dollars in additional debt, and mm -hmm. that would make them extraordinarily vulnerable. And they're not mm. likely to accept that. They're much less likely to accept something like that. Even even if they now, do something, the other preferable way to do it, frankly, is simply to abolish the idea that you need to raise the debt ceiling; that it goes up automatically when you vote for spending. And and can't they? Uh, but is the problem there that that cannot be done via reconciliation? Yes, oh. that's the problem. So you'd have to get Demo uh, uh, Republicans you'd have to, to get agree. Ten Republicans willing to go along with that in the Senate. Maybe that's something that you could do in a lame duck if they're jolted enough into realizing what the consequences would be if uh -huh. they don't. But I sure wouldn't want to count on that. And even if you raised it uh, by something ridiculous, not just a few trillion, but you said the debt ceiling shall be uh, 100 quadrillion dollars from here yeah. on out. It would be so ridiculous, but it would, you know, take this off the table. Would it be just ridiculous enough that nobody would actually use this against Democrats in the future, or would they absolutely use that against Democrats? They're absolutely going to use it against <laughs> Democrats, of course. All right. Um, and, you know, you, you have to look at what you could actually get through, uh -huh. actually get done, right. and we're not going to get that done. So it uh, sounds kind of like the McConnell rule... Or it's going to be a uh, very dark uh, Christmas. Actually, it won't be. Do we know when the uh, when we actually next hit the debt ceiling at uh, at the current rate? Um, no, it's uh, they. It's something that I think gets us through into next year. And we also have to keep in mind that if you reach a technical level, there are still all kinds of techniques that the Treasury Department can mm -hmm. use to put it off. Uh, but only for so long. There are limits to that. Yeah. We're probably talking about, you know, the first several months of 2023. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not good enough. No, it is not. Of course, there's another option. Americans can give the uh, uh, Democrats uh, majorities once again in both chambers of Congress. And that would forestall this madness. Well, at least another two years. Norm yeah. Ornstein, uh, thank you, sir, for all you do. You can read uh, Norm's article. I will link to it, of course, over at theatlantic.com. You can and should follow him on Twitter at Norm Ornstein. Dr. Ornstein, sir, always great speaking with you, my friend. Uh, the same with you, Brad. Thank you, sir. Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, Angela Peoples of Election Defenders on how you can help support voters and ensure the November 8 midterm elections are free and fair for all. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. 
Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Every breath you take There's going to be a lot of people uh, watching the polls this year, at least I hope. And I hope there's a lot of people watching the watchers and people de-escalating those watchers. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Given all of the many concerns about what could happen on the ground on Election Day during this year's critical midterms on November 8th, especially after two years of unrelenting misinformation and disinformation about our elections by the former sore loser president and his gullible MAGA followers. One group, at least, following their similar effort during the 2020 election, say that they have trained hundreds of organizers in de-escalation tactics, crowd management, and even to be what they describe as first responders to democracy. They will station more than 1,000 of those folks at polling places this year in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and other states. The Election Defenders Coalition say that they will be returning for the 2022 midterm elections to help protect voters, particularly voters of color, from violence, intimidation, and misinformation at the polls in key battleground states. That, according to the group's press release this past week, quote, The recent rise of fascist ideas, laws and leaders at every level of politics has created an environment where access to safe, secure and legitimate voting is under renewed threat, said Tiffany Flowers, the campaign director for The Frontline, a joint campaign uh, founded in 2020 of the Working Families Party, the Movement for Black Lives Electoral Justice Project, United We Dream and Rising Majority. This election day, she vows, the pro-democracy organizers of this country are joining forces to preserve our right to free and fair elections. Following January 6th, the rise of election deniers and the rights calls for so-called voting security forces, it's our moral obligation to organize and help defend Americans' rights to vote, said Angela Peoples, the campaign director of the Frontline's Election Defenders Coalition. She cites especially this is important for voters of color who are the primary target of GOP voter suppression efforts. The 2020 Election Defenders campaign had 2,000 volunteers in all 50 states, and they plan to station more than 1,250 volunteers across 12 cities and towns for 2022. Joining us now is Angela Peoples, the campaign director for the Election Defenders. She's also a longtime grassroots organizer and political strategist, leading movements such as Black Mama's March and the Democracy Defense Coalition. She's now helping to coordinate the Frontline.org's grassroots coalition of civil rights and voting rights groups connecting everyday people, they say, with training, resources, and support to create a crew of first responders to democracy. I like the idea. Angela Peoples, welcome to the broadcast. 
Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. Uh, so first, uh, Angela, before we dive into what Election Defenders plans to do on November 8th, and by the way, very cool name, sounds like a Marvel uh, comic book or something like that. <laughs> sounds like Election Avenger. Anyway, uh, before we talk about that, uh, what are the greatest concerns that your group has about what could happen on November 8th? What do you expect? What do you fear? What are you most worried about? And how have those fears been amplified or changed since your similar election defenders effort back in 2000? Uh, yeah, well, I think the the biggest concern that I have my eye on right now is the um, intimidation factor that voters, that, you know, voter suppression, the different information can have. We understand that that is actually one of the main tactics of the right. We saw that in 2020. We're seeing that again this year, spreading rumors, spreading misinformation, um, and, and making it so that people who may be a little bit timid or may think, I can only have a little bit of time to vote, mm. or I l- only have a little, I just have barely enough capacity to get uh, through my day and stop by the polling place, that those are the folks that they're going to be a little bit too intimidated, whether it's because of the long line or confusion. Um, uh, with new voter suppression laws um, or you know, pulling people off of the polls, that those, are, those people won't show up. And so part of what we're doing is wanting to get our message out there that we will be there. The election defenders will be there, will be organized. We're trained not only in de-escalation, but also in what we call voter care and to support folks as they're at the polls, making sure that folks have information about what those new laws may be, um, and how to make sure that if they feel like they're denied their ability to vote, that they have um, a chance to, to, to address that and to not be denied the ability to cast their ballot, whether it's provisional or otherwise, on Election Day. So one of my, one of my biggest concerns is the impact and attempts at intimidation mm-hmm. may play on the electorate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some places, you know, these threats of violence are very real. And we're preparing folks to be responsive to those and to be aware of how to notice if there is an issue at their location, if there is a challenge that they need to be responsive to. Um, but we also know that a lot of this is just talk and, and, mm. and it attempts to create an atmosphere of fear. So we are planning to counter that fear with joy, with enthusiasm, to make sure that people can cast their ballot with safety and dignity. How, how are your folks uh, specifically trained then? So, uh, you know, what sort of skills do they, do they need to have or what sort of skills are they being trained at uh, to have to, uh, you know, to be able to de-escalate, as you describe? What could happen at the polling places uh, this year uh, that, that, you know, they're specifically trained for uh, to, to deal with? We anticipate attempts to, uh, whether it's being folks being literally at the polls um, in an organized in a line, trying to sort of present a, uh, an error that we're blocking your entrance, even though they won't be able to block the entrance because it's illegal. People won't be able to ba- black, um, excuse me, block ballot boxes because mm-hmm. that's also illegal. Um, but there is an error of sort of I'm, we're, we're showing up and we're going to be in, uh, lined up. So we're making sure that our volunteers are there as well. They'll be, you, you know, you'll, you may remember in black election defender and count every vote um, sweatshirts from 2020. We'll be out there again. So you'll see us bright 
um, and, and shining in our yellow and gold colors. <laughs> um, but in terms of the skills that folks are being trained at, so um, we have two types of trainings. We have our first responder training, which is sort of that entry level, the initial um, uh, place where we want folks to come in. They're trained in uh, situational awareness. They are trained to be mindful of even their own experience. A lot of times um, when there is a high intense um, uh, a high-stakes situation, mm-hmm. uh, what ends up um, causing the most sort of um, angst or, or challenge is our own reaction. So mm-hmm. we're training people to, to, to be able to re- think about what they might see on Election Day, whether it's um, people challenging an individual voter's ability to vote, mm-hmm. um, trying to challenge an, an, a, a particular ballot that's being dropped off, or even people showing up um, in, in uh, military garb or something that might look, uh, with an attempt to look intimidating. We're preparing people to be aware of what those situations are, and then also reminding them of what they can do um, to be in control of themselves um, and to be supportive of voters. We're really encouraging people, especially our first responders, mm-hmm. to not try, if there is an instance where there's an argument, someone's trying to go back and forth, or it looks like it could lead to an escalated situation. We're really encouraging people to focus on the voter. Focus on the voter. Don't try to be, you know, a, um, a superhero, as you say, even <laughs> though our name does sound kind of like an Avengers uh, right. uh, movie. <laughs> We're not asking people to be superheroes. We're not asking people um, to, to you, know, you know, do combat or anything. We're asking people to show up for their community members, to focus on the voter, and to make sure that they have what they need to finish the job and to cast their ballot. And are you guys... The other thing that... Uh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, please. I was just going to say, the other thing that we're thinking about in making sure that we're reminding our volunteers is that this is some, this, this election defense opportunity is something that we need to do from voting to counting all the way to certification. Yes. So um, as we, as you know, the many folks have said before in 2020, uh, we did not get the election results on election night. Mm-hmm. The same is true this year. Mm-hmm. In many places, we won't know who won or many races. We won't know who won until a few days, even up to a week or so after um, voting is done. Yep. And that's a good thing because mm-hmm. that means that people are voting by mail. That means that more people are voting generally. Um, and so we are also reminding our volunteers to be um, defenders all the way through the process so that they can be vocal and ambassadors in their community helping to combat misinformation that just because results aren't in on election night, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It doesn't mean that there's anything scrupulous, unscrupulous. It means that the process is working. Thank you for that, because so many people think that it's over as of election night. We've cast the votes. We can all go home. No, the counting continues. The certification goes on for several days, sometimes several weeks. And I can tell you that, you know, folks on the right are going to be there shouting to either uh, stop all the counting now or to count all of the ballots. They couldn't decide which one they were in favor of after 2020, but they will be there. So I'm glad to know that election defenders may be there as well are you guys on election day are you guys inside the polling place uh as as nonpartisan observers or is your work outside of the polling place yeah that's a great question our work is outside of the polling place there are many organizations that we're in communication with and coordination with that are recruiting people to be poll workers in those nonpartisan roles or to be poll watchers um and i should say we're we're, we're not um in coordination, but we are in communication and letting them so that they know the role mm-hmm. that 
our election de- defenders are playing so that when they see folks in those gold sweatshirts or in those lime green t-shirts, that we are there not to, to interfere with the process, but to support voters. So we'll be on the outside and making sure that things stay, stay calm, stay joyful, stay energetic, and are the type of the experience that can keep people um, engaged all the way through to casting their ballot. Now, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, Angela Peoples, the, uh, this footage from ABC 15 in Arizona in uh, Mesa on Thursday night, uh, but uh, similar behavior is being reported elsewhere in the state and in other states. The footage shows some right-wingers who are camping out in parking lots to watch absentee ballot drop boxes based on the misinformation that they were given from that phony 2000 mules film. But as disinformed as those uh, folks may be, they do have the right to watch those drop boxes if that's how they want to spend their time. And they may do so as well on Election Day at the polls. You mentioned, uh, you know, some people may show up in, in military fatigues and so forth. While that sort of behavior or that kind of dressing may, uh, you know, bother some people or offend some people, um, they're allowed to do it. What's the difference between legitimate poll watching and the sort of behavior that your volunteers hope to be there to help de-escalate? Where's the line? How can you tell the difference? You know, that's a great question. I think that for us, what we're really, that's also why we're really encouraging folks to focus on the voter and not try to Unless, unless they are trained in with, with deeper de-escalation skills, mm-hmm. which some of, some of our volunteers will be trained in that. But for the most part, we're really encouraging people to just focus on being there to care for and to support the voter, um, because that's one of the ways that you can tell the difference, right? Uh, one of the, we, we know that um, some states have passed laws to make it confusing about what is and isn't allowed, mm-hmm. what type of behavior is and isn't allowed at polling locations. And so if someone seems like they're trying to sow confusion, moving disinformation, I feel like is a really good indicator that this is not someone who is pro-democracy, someone that's trying to stop people from voting. Mm -hmm. That's a really good signal. And that's also why we are trying to be as communicative to poll watchers and to those nonpartisan poll folks that are going to be inside the polls um, to make sure that they know who we are and the role that we're playing. Um, so that there is no, you know, bit of confusion or, or misunderstanding. Um, and then the other thing I think is is important to know is that, you know, we're, we're not there necessarily to document voters. We're there to support voters. And so we're not necessarily going to be there trying to take pictures of people mm-hmm. as they're casting their ballot or trying to, you know, critique this signature or that or, or, or that mm-hmm. line or that address. That's not our role at all. And we don't think that that's the role of anyone that, that, that is not in the election administration business. What we will be doing um, is making sure that voters feel safe, that they feel secure, that they know that they are valued and that, that, work, that their work is important. And if there are any issues that need to be escalated to um, uh, for potential legal challenges or um, if somebody has a, an issue with their, their registration or things like that, we also have lines of communication with experts who can help deal with that on the spot so that the people can be able to move forward as much as possible. I know the uh, election defenders were in place back in 2000 uh, for the presidential election. Uh, were, were you all in place during the, the primaries over the past year? And if so, did you run into any problems that might uh, help inform you or 
help us understand what may be coming down the road uh, during uh, the uh, general election for the midterms in about uh, two weeks or so? You know, we were not mobilized um, for the primaries. We we were um, we were actually just starting to get reengaged and mm-hmm. starting to kind of turn the machine back on from about two years ago. Um, but I, I will say that the the lessons that we have learned from 2020, from 2021. Um, have been very informative in terms of what we need to do this cycle. I think that um, recognizing, you know, again, a lot of their playbook is about intimidation. Mm -hmm. A lot of their uh, their strategy involves fear tactics. And so we are really um, focused on the joy that we can bring to people um, and reminding folks that, that as much as, you know, some may try to make Voting seem like something that is um, privileged or something that only a few should be able to do, that everybody has a right. Um, everyone that has the right to vote in this country should be able to exercise that, um, and that w- that's the position that we're moving through. Um, thinking about how do we combat fear, we combat fear with joy. Um, we combat fear with our enthusiasm, and that is what I think the, the main lesson that we took from, if you remember, in 2020, there were um, uh, several vir- viral videos of folks dancing at polling locations, mm-hmm. little mini concerts that were happening, mm-hmm. just really showing that this is actually something that, one, our country has done for, for hundreds of years, um, and that we, while we have not done it perfectly for all of those years, we grow and move closer to actually being that country that we say we are, where every, every man is created equal and everyone has an access to, you know, exercise their civic duty. And so we're really trying to lean on that history um, and remember that we are the ones that saved our democracy in 2020. Uh, we will be the ones that do it again. <laughs> well, be careful, Angela. You know, they've already uh, uh, barred giving food and water to people standing online in states like so Georgia true. and Florida. Uh, I suspect they will uh, also bar dancing and uh, music <laughs> playing if you're too good at it. So don't be too enjoyable. Um, are there any uh, specific states or counties, even specific polling places, where your your group has particular concerns this year, where you may be stationing more folks than in other jurisdictions? We're looking in places where um, we, we have a, a few target states. We're trying to recruit election defenders from across the country, but we do have a few states where we're trying to um, build um, our program deeper with with state-based organizations. I should say that while election defenders is a a, a national program, Mm -hmm. the power really does come from state organizers and local leaders who are the ones that know specifically where the, 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 um, the key pain points might be mm-hmm. or where the different uh, particular elected officials can be trusted or where folks need to have their eye on. And so we're in deep communication with organizations in states like uh, Arizona and in Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, Georgia and Florida, where I'm, I am based, mm-hmm. um, and, and as well as in North Carolina and Nevada. These are all places, especially where we know that there also are either election deniers on the ballot mm-hmm or there are election deniers in position to make decisions about voting and about uh, voter registration. So we're particularly have our eye on those pieces and are working deeply with organizers in, in those areas to make sure that they have the support that they need, they have the resources that they need, and that um, we can be as um, 
connected to their strategy as possible. The uh, AP is reporting today that the League of Women Voters of Ohio say that interfaith religious leaders are also uh, being trained in uh, uh, de-escalation techniques. Uh, They're calling them peacekeepers. They will be on call during early voting and on Election Day, quote, to help bring the temperature down. Are are you guys uh, at uh, thefrontline.org and the election defenders, are you guys coordinating with groups like that, or are we sort of looking at a bunch of independent, separate efforts sort of aimed at the same thing uh, in various parts of the country? We are, we're absolutely coordinated with those folks and, and are trying to make sure that, one, you know, because this is, a, as much as it's a very important election year, it's also a midterm year, and so... As you, you know, as the as goes, that there's a little bit let low, numbers are usually lower on midterm years than there are in the election years. And 2020 was um, a super year because not only did we have a presidential election, but we also were coming off of a, 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 a racial up, a, a uprising around racial justice. Mm-hmm. And so many people were already activated and looking for ways to throw down. And so this year we know that, you know, a couple years into a pandemic, so many folks are strapped in different ways. So we are looking for opportunities to partner with organizations like the Peacekeepers um, in, in, in Ohio and mm-hmm. in other parts of the country so that we can maximize our impact and maximize our resources um, to have as much uh, reach as possible. Uh, finally, Angela Peoples, is this a project that folks uh, who are listening to us now uh, may be able to join themselves in some way? Are you still looking for defenders election defenders is there still time to train them or alternately is your group uh, you know seeking support through donations etc this late in the game we are absolutely looking for more election defenders if people want to join us there's two opportunities that i would say best ways to get connected one is to go to bit.ly um, slash defend 22 so that's bit.ly slash defend 22 there you can sign up for all of the trainings. We have trainings just about every day coming up in this next mm. two weeks. Um, so folks can get plugged in there. Um, and then also, if you just want more information, you can text the word front line. That's one word, front line, to 30403. And you'll get uh, added to our list, and you'll, get plugged, you'll be able to get plugged into the trainings if you're interested. Um, and we also do mass calls regularly to help update people on what's happening in the states, as well as to combat any misinformation that might be percolating. Very cool. Angela Peoples is the campaign director for the Election Defenders, which is part of uh, a coalition of thefrontline.org. You can go to thefrontline.org. You can, as she notes, go to bit.ly slash defend 22 i think i got it right or you can you text great. or you can text frontline the word frontline one word to three zero four zero three and if you'd like to follow them throughout all of this over the next several weeks because it's going to be nothing but fun and joy as she says uh you can find them on uh, frontline on the twitters they are we join frontline and as I said, thefrontline.org. Angela herself can be found on Twitter at MS Peoples. That's Ms. Peoples, if you're nasty. She's the campaign director <laughs> of, election director, uh, of uh, election defenders. Angela Peoples, really appreciate you joining us today. Good luck in the weeks ahead. Stay in touch if there's anything we can do uh, to help, whether it's uh, before, during, or after Election Day. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. 
And that's all for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks so much to our guests, Norm Ornstein of the Competitive Enterprise Institute and Angela Peoples of Election Defenders. And of course, to you for spending part of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's Bradcast or any other, you can download them all anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that is a service that is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to stay completely independent on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Follow and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Remember to vote and help others vote because saving democracy is going to take all of us. And as Brad always says, good luck, world. (laughs) 